So I want to begin with a question this morning. When you hear the words, the Lord's Prayer, what comes to mind? When you think about the Lord's Prayer, if someone says, I, I was looking at the Lord's Prayer, or pray with me the Lord's Prayer. If you're like me, you think of that time when his disciples asked uh, Jesus, how should we pray? And then we find it in Matthew chapter 6, and we can say it together. The words are on the screen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that is certainly an amazing prayer. It's, it's a really famous prayer. You don't even have to be a Christian to probably know that prayer. And Jesus is modeling for us how to pray. It gives us some handles for some things that we should think about um, as we pray. But this morning, I want to look at another prayer from our Lord Jesus Christ. This one is not uh, uh, primarily an instructional prayer. This is a pastoral prayer. It's not merely a model for us to pray, although I do think there are things we can learn about how to pray and things we should be praying for from this prayer, but it goes beyond that. It's a deeply personal prayer. We see words like, Father, I desire. You want to know what does Jesus desire? We see that in this prayer. You really see the heart of Christ in this prayer. Less of a lesson on how we should pray. This morning, Jesus is going to the Father in prayer. And we have a window into that prayer this morning because it's been preserved for us in Holy Scripture. And so Jesus, in his hour of greatest need, he prays. Jesus prays. He doesn't panic. He doesn't run. He doesn't fight. He doesn't do what you or I might be inclined to do. He lifts up his eyes to the Father, entrusts himself to him, and the ones that he loves, his current disciples and his future disciples, and he entrusts them to God the Father. And as he prays this morning, we're going to look at three movements of his prayer. You might have noticed as I was reading it, it's a, it's a lot of scripture. It's 26 verses of scripture. And I'm going to attempt to do in one sermon what other pastors and preachers have done in 45 sermons. There's a Puritan pastor Thomas Manton preached this passage, took him 45, not minutes, 45 sermons. Others have written entire volumes on this work. John Knox, the, the great Scottish reformer with a manly beard, as he was dying in the final weeks of his life, the one thing he wanted every single day read to him was this prayer. And in the moments where he's like, I'm barely hanging on. I am about to die. This prayer was just read over him over and over. There are going to be three basic movements to this prayer. First, we're going to see Jesus pray for himself. He's going to ask the Father to fully restore his glory to him upon the completion of his mission. 
Second, we're going to see Jesus pray for his core disciples who are soon to face a heavy and hard and difficult road ahead. And he's going to pray and ask that the Father would preserve them, to guard them, to keep them as they're sent out on mission to spread the gospel. And then finally, friends, this is incredible. Jesus is going to pray for you and me. He's going to pray for his future disciples that we would be united in love and purpose and that we would have a deep and abiding relationship with God. It's an amazing prayer. Let's start together in verse 1 as Jesus prays for himself. That's our first point. Jesus prays for himself. Look at me at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Now again, I just want to remind you, if you haven't been with us or tracking, this is, this is ending this section, John 13 to 17, this upper room discourse. John slows that night down for us, lets us in on the kind of conversations that were happening around that table. Jesus has washed his disciples' feet. He's talked with them about the importance of their loving one another. He's given them that new commandment. This new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. The betrayer, Judas, the son of destruction, has gone into the night to betray Jesus and give him into the hands of the religious authorities. Jesus has told them about the the Holy Spirit, another helper, the one who is coming to guide them into all truth. He has told them that he himself is the way, the truth, and the life that everybody's looking for a way to live, the truth to live, and and a life to live. And Jesus is saying, I am all of that. He's told them he is the true vine. They are the branches. And like any branch, if you want to remain alive and fruitful, you need to stay connected to the vine. And he says, if they will abide and remain connected to him, that they will bear much fruit. He's told them, the world is going to hate you. You will face opposition. You shouldn't consider it strange. You should expect it. It is coming. And he's told them, but don't worry. In fact, take heart. Because by my death and resurrection, I have conquered the world. I've overcome sin and death. And now John tells us Jesus has finished talking. When he finalized and finished these words, he said, now it's time to pray. And he lifts up his eyes to heaven to talk to his father. And he says, the hour has come. The hour for the glorification of Jesus has come. And that hour is also the hour of his execution They're intimately connected. You can't have the glorification without the execution of Jesus. And if you've been reading John, if you've been tracking with us, this word, hour, has been used by John as a thread connecting and joining the gospel. We saw it first in John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. When Jesus' mother comes up to him and said they've run out of wine, and Jesus says, woman, my hour has not yet come. In John chapter 7, his brothers, the, the, the 
Uh, the half-brothers of Jesus recognize there's something different about him. He's able to do things that other people can't do. And it's one of the festival feasts where they go up to Jerusalem and they say, Hey, Jesus, you should flex your glory when you go up to the feast this year. You need to stop playing all these games. You need to stop speaking in parables. You need to just show everybody who you really are. And Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. In John 8, the religious authorities want to arrest Jesus. And John tells us that they're not able to yet. Jesus just slips out from among the crowd because why? The hour had not yet come. It wasn't time yet. But then we saw in John chapter 12, the shift. Every time before that, it was the hour has not come. And now in John chapter 12, it says, well, now the hour has come. And Jesus answers them, John 12, 23 and 24. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Right here, Jesus clearly connects this hour to his death. He is that grain of wheat that dies and goes into the ground so that it can bear much fruit. And it becomes the pathway for his glory. Again, in John chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he what? He loved them to the end. Might be my favorite verse in all of John. He loved them to the end. The hour of his departure had come and Jesus will love his disciples to the point of dying on the cross to accomplish his purposed end. The hour has come. For what? Look with me at the rest of verse one and following. This is Jesus' prayer for glory. The hour has come. Now here's his request. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. Everybody, want, what is eternal life? It's right here, guys. That they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He goes on, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There's so much in these verses. Jesus asks that God the Father would glorify him as he seeks to bring glory to the Father. I want you to notice the reciprocity here. Jesus is saying, I am here to glorify you and Father, you in return will glorify me. There's a mutual glorification going on between the Father and the Son. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And the Son desires to exalt the Father. And the Father desires to exalt the Son. Now, what does it mean to glorify someone? That's one of those words that can often be hard for us to get our minds around. Glory, if you were to read the Bible from the beginning to the end, is one of those words that comes up over and over and over again. It's one of the, the biggest themes in all of the Bible. 
And if you're in your Old Testament in the Hebrew, that word for glory, kavod, comes from a word that means heavy or weightiness. So you know you're around glory when there's just a, there's a weight to it. There's a heaviness to it. And then when you get to the New Testament, that word for glory is associated with radiance and brilliance and light. And if you were to kind of combine those two ideas together, you get this reality that God's glory is the revelation. It's the display. Like light does it. It brings a display. So you can see it. It's the revelation of God's radiance, his significance, and his importance. Earlier in John chapter 1, when it said that Jesus was full of glory, we defined glory like this. God's glory is the public display of who God is. His worth, his value, his perfections, his beauty, his goodness, his truth, all of it for us to worship and enjoy. God's glory it's the weight of his significance. You know when you're dealing with something significant, it feels heavy, doesn't it? It's the weight of his significance and it's the brilliance of his splendor. It's the reality that the sum of all of his attributes, if we were to just list them all to describe who God is, it evokes worship out of us. When we rightly understand and see God's glory, you can't help but worship and his presence, the very reality as we think about God, demands a response from us. You know you're standing next to glory when its significance feels weighty and its presence draws something out of you. Some of you know I grew up in Houston, Texas. Officially, the city is below sea level, which means it's, it's flatter than flat, right? It's below flat. And I will never forget the first time as a teenager when I saw the Rocky Mountains. Okay, I know a lot of you have gone up to Mount Washington, and it's, it's beautiful. But it's a, it's a hill compared to the Rocky Mountains. And then there's other mountains in the world that I haven't seen yet that make the Rockies look like foothills, right? But I will never forget the time I saw the Rocky Mountains. I just stood there. I couldn't stop looking as we were driving in and they were off in the distance. I just had never seen anything that big before. And in the presence of something so massive and so big, I felt small. Not in a diminishing kind of way. Not in a, a I'm lesser than kind of way, but in a I am not the most important thing in the room right now. And it was actually a really good thing. It made me realize that whoever made that was deserving of my worship. Now, at the time, I wasn't a Christian. I didn't grow up in a distinctly Christian home, but I just intuitively, instinctively felt the need to worship and thank whoever made that mountain to thank them for it. That's glory. We crave it. We need it. It stirs us up to life. When you're in the presence of glory, you worship and you enjoy it. That's what you go there to do. Pastor Kevin and I were talking about that this week. When he said, I, had this, I was telling him about my Rocky Mountain experience. He was like, I felt the same way when I went to the Grand Canyon. 
It's true. Have you, ever, have you ever seen someone go to the Grand Canyon and pull out their laptop to check email? You don't go there to work. You go there just to see it, to worship whoever made it, and to enjoy it. That's glory. When you're in the faith, and, 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 and friends, those are just drops in the bucket of the glory of God. It moves you to worship and enjoyment. And Jesus is saying, Father, the hour has come for my departure. I'm going to endure the shame of the cross. I'm going to endure the pain of torture. I'm going to endure the humiliation of public execution. But Father, when it's done, restore to me the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. Jesus is saying something about himself. One, he existed before the creation of the world, right? He was there with the Father because he is God and he shared in that same kind of glory and for the sake of the world. He gave up that glory for you and me. And he's saying, when the work is accomplished, will you restore it back to me? Jesus has just said that he's eternal, existing alongside the Father before the world and that he's deserving and shares in the same Glory is the Father, and don't miss this. Jesus is saying that his glory is inextricably linked to the work and purpose for which he came, namely, to give eternal life to all those whom the Father has given him. And Jesus says eternal life is wrapped up in it. Now listen, when he talks about eternal life, he's not merely saying you'll have endless days. Days that never end although that is wrapped up in it, it's included in it. But what Jesus says is eternal life is that you would know the one true God and Jesus whom he has sent. In other words, eternal life is knowing and loving God the Father through Christ the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit and us enjoying and knowing and reveling in the glory of Christ. Jesus is praying and asking God for the glory due his name. And what Jesus is anticipating for here and praying for and asking that the Father would give him here in John 17, 1 through 5, it's exactly what Paul says has happened in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 to 11. As I read Philippians 2, I want you to think about what all that Jesus has just asked for. And now Paul, on the other side of the cross and resurrection, says it's happened. Look, look at it with me. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. That's Jesus giving up his glory for his time here on earth. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That's the restoration of his glory. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As Jesus is exalted again to his rightful place of glory, it brings glory to God as he receives that glory for having accomplished the work on the cross. That's what Jesus is praying for. He, he's saying, look, the cross is directly in front of me. 
And Jesus is praying and asking that through the cross, he would accomplish his mission and have his glory fully restored. And it's not selfish. It's not prideful. It's the right thing. Jesus prays for himself. Because what we need most is to know and to worship and to glorify Christ. And he wants to make sure that we have everything we need because our life is found as we worship and bring glory to God. Do you know why we sin? We sin every time because we are seeking glory for ourselves instead of seeking to glorify Christ. Friend, you cannot sin as you're glorifying Christ. They, they don't go together every time. And you may not be thinking in your head as I go to do this thing, I hate Jesus. I don't want him to have glory. I want glory for myself. No one talks like that. But in our heart, that's exactly what we're doing. And it leads to death and destruction. And Jesus said, I have come to give you life, abundant life, eternal life, where you know the Father and you're restored and reconciled to him and you know me, Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, and you find life in his glory. See, Jesus wants to give you glory, but it comes as we glorify him. We're gonna see that later on in the passage. I don't want to give away all of that yet. But that's where life is found. And so it is right and good for Jesus to say, Father, restore to me my glory so that we would behold him and see him and worship him and glorify him so that in so doing, we would have life. First, Jesus prays for himself that his glory might be fully restored. Now look with me at verses 6 to 19 as Jesus prays for his core group of disciples. Jesus says, going, he's praying to the Father, I have manifested, revealed, and shown your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you've given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they've believed that you sent me. Listen to this. I'm praying for them. Not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are mine. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. Now in verses 6 to 10, you see Jesus shift the focus of his prayer from himself and his glory to his disciples who will become the apostles of the early church. Think about this. He is about to pass on them a major responsibility as they go reach others, the world, with the life-changing message of the gospel. Jesus doesn't have a plan B. They are his plan. His people are his plan, the means by which the world will come to know Christ. Now listen to how he identifies them. First, he says that they are the people whom the Father has given the Son out of the world. That's the first identifier. Second, they understand the words 
of Jesus that have come from God the Father, and they've received them and kept them. So not only are they identified as those whom the Father has given the Son, but they're also those who receive God's word and keep them. Third, they've come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God sent from the Father. Now this isn't the point of the sermon, but it is a point worth making that these are still the marks of a true disciple today. To be a disciple of Jesus means that the Father has given given you to Jesus and that you have this receptivity in your heart to receive the words of Christ and to keep them. We are a word-centered people and that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who gave himself that you might have eternal life. If those are true of you, you are a disciple of Christ. Does this describe you? Being here today does not make you a disciple of Jesus. What makes you a disciple of Jesus is that the Father has given you to Christ, that you have a deep and abiding and a love for the word of God, and at the end of the day, your foundational belief is Jesus is the Son of God, and he gave himself up for me. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Now let's look into, so so those, those verses describe who he's praying for. He's praying for his core group of disciples, and by implication, us as well. But now in verses 11 to 16, Jesus specifically prays for five things. He says, I am praying for them, right? And then he gives five things that we'll go through quickly. I'm going to tell you what they are ahead of time so that when I read this portion of his prayer, I want you to be listening for them. So if you're taking notes, write this down. He prays for five things. He prays that they would be protected, number one, that they would be united, number two, that they would be delighted, number three. He prays and asks that they would be sanctified, and finally, that they would be committed. I'll say them again, protected, united, delighted, sanctified, and committed. Listen for those Listen to the words of Christ. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them. Not one has been lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak into the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. First, Did you hear Jesus pray and ask the Father to protect his disciples? In verse 11, Jesus asked, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them, guard them, protect them. In verse 12, Jesus says that while he was with them, he kept them. And now he asks the Father, because he's going away, he asks, Father, will you protect them in my absence? Remember, he doesn't say take them out of the world. Our protection doesn't come from isolation and and being in a bubble. But rather he says, Father, would you keep and guard and protect them from 
the evil one. Jesus is asking God the Father to protect and preserve his disciples so that they would be faithful to the end. On our passage last week, Jesus said that opposition is coming. We hear it again today that the world will hate them. And we know that our enemy, the devil, hates all who follow Christ. And so Jesus knows opposition is here. There's the evil one, there's the world, and so they are going to need protection. With the task ahead of them, it will be mission critical that the Father, by the power of his name, keep guard and protect his disciples. It reminds me of our closing doxology that we sing every week that comes from Jude 24 to 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, same word, and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. It is God who is able to keep us and to protect us. And Jesus prays that he would. Number two, he prays that they would be united. Did you hear that in his prayer? As the Father protects them in his name, he asks that they would be one as Jesus and the Father are one, that they would be united. Now listen, Jesus is not asking that we would enjoy social camaraderie. He's not asking that we would um, uh, know each other's affinities and have good conversations around the table, although I do think that's an implication of this. Jesus prays that they would be one as the Father and the Son are one. Our pattern for our unity is none other than the Holy Trinity. Just as there is equality, unity, and distinction in the Godhead, as each member of the Trinity loves one another, they're united in purpose and mission, Jesus is asking the Father to give this group of disciples a spirit of unity that will enable them to work through their diversity to accomplish the mission that is before them. You could do a study on each one of the disciples and pull out their backgrounds, their political affiliations, their upbringings, their socioeconomic statuses. This is as diverse a group of people as you're going to find. And Jesus says, Father, make sure they stay united. The task ahead is too important for them to be divided. Number three, he also prays that they would be delighted. Did you hear Jesus say that? He desires for his joy to be fulfilled in them. Friends, as Christians, we should be some of the most joy-filled people because we have the joy of Christ. One of the distinguishing marks of believers is that no matter the circumstances, you and I and these disciples have access to real and genuine joy. And in the face of coming trial and persecution, Jesus prays that they would have no less than the joy of Christ. Number four, Jesus prays that they would be sanctified. He says that they would be sanctified in truth by the word of God. The disciples are to be putting sin to death and to cultivate a life of righteousness that aligns with the truth of God given to us by his word. Friends, Jesus cares about our growth in holiness. He does not want us to become complacent. He does not want us to be given to our sin. He has given us the spirit of truth to guide us into all righteousness. And so if you're asking, Pastor, can I really abstain from that sin? I mean it in no uncertain terms. Look at me. Yes, you 
can. You have the spirit of the living God who guides you. Jesus himself has prayed for your sanctification. Now, I'm not banking my savings account that you will abstain from sin. I'm not even banking that I will. But I am telling you, if you are in Christ, it is not just a far off possibility. You really can say no. Jesus prays and asks God that he would sanctify us. And finally, fifth, he prays that they would be committed. Jesus does not pray and ask God the Father to remove us out of the world. Why? There is a mission. He has actually said, I'm sending them into the world. Jesus has a purpose. After his resurrection, he will commission his disciples to make disciples of all peoples, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he's commanded them and to continue the gospel ministry that he trained them for. Jesus cares about his disciples, and before he leaves them or sends them out on mission, he's praying for them that they would be fruitful and faithful in the mission that they have. Now, there are points of application I want to draw out at the end. But right now, as you heard Jesus praying that they would be protected and united and delighted and sanctified and um, committed, I want you to see the heart of Christ for his disciples in his prayer. He is the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. And he could have spent his last few moments doing all sorts of things. And he spends them praying for his disciples. Now, I want us to see the last few verses because Jesus doesn't just pray for his core group of disciples. Everyone in this room who would say, I am a disciple of Christ. He prayed for you on that night. How do we know that? Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, the ones right in front of me, but also those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus shifts a final time in his prayer to his core group of disciples, uh, from his core group of disciples to everyone who would believe in Christ. It's like he's looking down the halls of history at you and me. One of the reasons why people have found such great comfort in John 17, because in no unmistakable term, he is praying directly for you and me. So listen to Jesus pray for you. He prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you've sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I hope you heard a theme being repeated there. The same prayer of unity that Jesus prays for his core group of disciples, he prays for us. In verses 21 and 23, Jesus prays that we would all be one just as the Father and the Son are one. It's nearly identical to what he prays for his 11 remaining disciples. And he's asking that all disciples would have a spiritual union that's grounded in their mutual love for God and their dedication to the mission of God as we all abide and grow in a relationship with God. Friends, this unity is, is, is not mere friendship. It's not common interest. It's a unity that's patterned after the unity of the Father 
and the Son. That Jesus prays for this twice should emphasize how important our unity is to Jesus. Now, one of the joys of being your pastor is I've gotten to know many of you over these last few years, and we are a diverse group of people from different backgrounds. We have different ethnicities here. There's different ages. There are different income brackets. We have different interests and passions. And yet, in all of our diversity, we are to be united in Christ. He is our organizing principle. He is the tuning fork by which we are all to be tuned. A.W. Tozer provides this helpful illustration. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. Friends, we are those pianos. We do not find unity by being tuned to each other. We find our unity by being tuned to Christ. He is our tuning fork. Our one accord comes from being tuned to the unity that is found between the Father and the Son. And he says that when we do that, our unity becomes a powerful witness for a watching world. Did you see where he said that? That as we are one, that the world may believe that you have sent me. It preaches a compelling gospel that will even lead some to put their faith in Christ. He prays for us to have this unity. And as he closes, he also prays that the purposes for which he came would be accomplished. Look with me at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world doesn't know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Did you hear that word, desire? Jesus said, Father, I desire. If you ever want to know, what does Jesus desire? What does Jesus want? He says it right here. He says, I desire that those whom you've given me may be with me where I am and for them to see my glory and for them to know my love. What's at the heart of Christ in this prayer? His greatest desire. He says, Father, I desire that they, he's talking about you and me, that we would be with him, that we would see his glory, and that we would be loved and love him in return. At the end of his prayer, he says, Father, what I really want is for that those who come to believe in me that they would be with me you hear that jesus wants to be with you at the top of his list of things he desires to be with you and that as we're with him we would see his glory and that we would know that he loves us, and that in return we would love him. 
This is why Jesus can endure the blood-stained road of the cross. He has you and he has me in his mind. He is looking down the halls of history and he's able to endure the cross because of a greater desire to be with you and me. He's asking God the Father, accomplish this work so that all who would come to believe would be with me, that they'd see my glory and experience his love. Friends, that's eternal life. Not merely endless days, but an ever-increasing joy-filled relationship with him where we're with him, where we're worshiping him, and we're being loved by him. So as we close, how do we apply a passage like this to our lives? I've got three things for you to consider this week. First one is this. In your hour of need, look up and pray. This is so difficult for me. And my own self-sufficiency, in my own pride, if you're a fan of the Enneagram and my own eightness, when I'm faced with difficult things, my disposition is to bare my knuckles, put my head down, and push through with all my might. If you know me, you're nodding your head. You're like, yep, that's you. Every week, as I get to prepare for a passage, there's usually a phrase or two that the Spirit uses. It just stuns me. It just kind of, like for me, it's the, it's the, it's the fruit of, of all the study. It was these words in verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven. See, Jesus is facing the greatest hour of his need. He doesn't bare his knuckles. He doesn't just put his head down. He doesn't just say, guys, we got something hard to do. He takes the time to lift up his eyes and pray. If nothing else, then he'd be comforted in the presence of the Father to express his will and desire for what's to come. I don't know what your inclination is when you face hours of difficulty. Maybe it's to run. Maybe it's to panic. Maybe it's towards substance. Maybe it's towards a besetting sin. Whatever it is for you, we would all do well to abandon all of that foolishness and look up and pray. Number two, this one's a question. Whose glory are you seeking? Whose glory are you seeking? Jesus prays for his disciples. It's beautiful. Yes and amen. But before he does, what did he pray for? Before he got to his core group, before he got to you and me, what did Jesus pray for? What did he end his prayer with? He prays for his glory to be restored. This is so critical that we remember that Jesus is God and he deserves all the glory. And not only did Jesus pray for his glory to be restored, but he also prays that those who believe in him would see his glory. It must be that Jesus knows there's something critical about our lives moving down the path towards eternal life, being wrapped up in his glory. You see, our sin, our, our sin shifts the focus off of God and onto ourselves, and we crave and we long to be the center of attention, to have our comforts met, and to be the ones praised for glory, friends. It drives almost every single thing 
We do. And it is a path of foolishness and sin, and it ends in death. If you try to build and attain glory for yourselves, listen to me, you will come up empty-handed. If you try to grab for glory, you will get nothing. Nothing. On the other hand, if you seek to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, here's what you will find. You will find life. And with your hands open, instead of busy trying to grab it, with your hands open, you are now in a place to receive the glory that God wants to give you. Whose glory are you seeking? Finally, number three. When you face matters of difficulty, remember Jesus' prayer for his disciples. He prayed that they would be protected, that we would be protected from enemies of the gospel. He prayed that we'd be united as his followers. He prayed that we would be delighted and experience his joy. Jesus prayed that we'd be sanctified so that we'd become more like Christ. He prayed that we'd be committed to his mission so his purposes might be fulfilled. Jesus, friends, Jesus prayed for you in me, he had, he's already prayed for the life that we are living right now. So you are not alone. He's gone before us in prayer. And remember, he's not done. Did you know that Jesus is currently, right now, praying for you? He hasn't stopped. This is what theologians often call the present ministry of Christ. If you ask, what is Jesus doing right now? One of the things he's doing right now is interceding and praying for you in me. Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is? Where is he right now? At the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. My grammar nerdy friends, interceding means present, active, going on right now. He prayed for you in John 17, and he hasn't stopped. Let's remember that Jesus is not for us in theory, but for us in practice. So whatever you are facing right now, Jesus is praying for you. I want to close. I think we've quoted them before, but they're worth quoting again. The words of Robert Murray McShane. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million of enemies. Just think about that. If you were in this other room and you knew just outside that door, you could hear the Son of God praying for you. He says it would embolden you that you wouldn't fear a million of your enemies. And yet, friends, the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Let's pray.